Welcome to the Sheer on Parshas Massey, sponsored by Aaron and Lillian Fuchs and Jason Fuchs in memory of Aaron's mother, Sarah Fuchs, Chaya Sura, Bas Gittel, Oleha Sholem, whose yard site is on the 26th of Tammuz. We're going to be looking at the Mikdash HaLevi. Um, I've chosen three separate Divrei Torah, one for the beginning of the Parsha and two at the end of the Parsha talking about uh, Ori Miklot. Let's begin. You know that the Parsha begins, Parshas Masse begins with a discussion, um, a recollection, a record of all the different places that the Bnei Yisrael went to. So Mikdash Alevi, my grandfather and his saver, points out the obvious, but it's something that needs to be addressed. It's kind of the elephant in the room for the entire um, three books of the Torah that we refer to as Shemois, Vayikra and Bamidbar, because there's something going on, or let's say something not going on, which requires our attention, and this is the perfect moment to address it. Masse is the final parsha of Bamidbar. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. What is the elephant in the room? Listen carefully. When we talk about all the different places that the Jewish nation, the Israelites, visited and stopped at and dwelt in over the period of the 40 years after leaving Egypt and before embarking on the conquest of Eretz Israel, immediately it prompts a question. Here we have a list of all the places they went. There's a question that emerges out of that list of 42 places. Why is it, says the Mikdash Alevi, when we look at the history as represented by these uh, chapter headings, let's call them that, of the different places that the Jewish people went to over 40 years, that we don't talk about the entire 40 years. We, there's a lot we don't know. All the details, everything that we see, all the details that we have about events that occurred and things that happened are only with reference to year one, a little bit into year two, and year 40. What about the 38 years in between? Where are they? What happened? What is it that occurred during that period? It's not, an, it's not an insignificant amount of time. It's almost two generations. What happened during those 38 years? If I were to ask you that, you probably never thought about it before. Because you know there's a lot of stories in the, in the Torah about their time in the Midbar, about the Bnei Yisrael's time in the Midbar. You've not, probably never thought about the fact that the vast majority of the stories, in fact all of the stories, occurred either in year one, bleeding into year two, and the final year, in fact, Devarim is the last five weeks. It's a drosha, a series of droshas given by Moshe Rabbeinu during the last five weeks of his life. So what, are, what about this great gap of time in the middle, the 38 years that we have no records of? We don't really know anything about them. We know the places that they went to. We know that there was a roughly about 20 different places that they stopped at during that period, we know nothing about what happened at any of those 20 places. 
Oid aleinu levare, says the Mikdash Alevi. There's something else that we really need to address. Another elephant in the room. Why is it that the Torah, when talking about the events that took place with the Israelites during their course of time, during the entire period that they were in the, in the wilderness, why is it that the only incidents that are mentioned are negative, very bad stories, things that don't show the Jewish people up in a very good light? Is there nothing that happened that they did that was good? You know, it's, it's like you know, when you're standing in front of the headmaster in school and he tells you about all the naughty things that you did, all the bad things that you did. You, you upset the teacher and you're creating disruption. You think to yourself, you know, but I, I did my homework very well and, you know, I, I passed my exams and yesterday I behaved in class. And you think to yourself, why are you telling me off? It's a kind of a parallel question here. Of all the stories that we could have told about the Jewish people, surely we could have found one or two stories that showed them up in a good light. Why are all the incidents that are recorded in the Torah between Shemois and Masay, why are all the stories about them, in which they are the main character, quite negative? It's a good question, right? So that's the question that he has. It's not possible that nothing good ever happened, that they didn't behave themselves, that there's not nothing, there's, that there must be something positive to say. We don't just have to talk about Maraglim Egel and Koirach. There's surely other things that we could have spoken about that we don't have to be talking about the Misloinanim. Surely there were people who weren't complaining. Why do we talk about in the Torah all the stories that show the Jewish people up in a negative light? Says the Mikdash Alevi, I'm going to use something, it's, it's, it's a, a moshal, it's a parable, to kind of create an analogy, a parallel that we can look at, and we can use that to explain this, these two questions. What happened to the 38 years, and why are the stories that are recorded so negative? What can we compare this to? There's a king, great, mighty king, who makes a feast, a celebratory feast for all his servants and for all his ministers, for all his nobles. He gets a bit shikar. He's a little drunk. He says to his, his uh, great ministers, his nobles who are sitting at the head table, he asks all of them to say something in praise of him. He wants to, a bit of a narcissist, he wants to hear positive things about himself. What do you have to say about me that shows me up in a good light? All right. First nobleman gets up and he says, the king is such a great wise man. He's one of the wisest people I have ever met. That's what the first, the first one says. Second one gets up and he says, Wise, the king is so mighty and powerful and strong. The gvura of this king is beyond compare. Hashlishi, the third nobleman gets up. Esoishroi says, you kidding me? Do you know how great this king is? He's the wealthiest king of all time. Ilorovi. The fourth one, the nobleman gets up and he says, Es midas chastoi This king, there's no one kinder 
There's no one more kind-hearted than this king. What a kind and wonderful person he is. What about the fifth nobleman? Gets up. He has to follow those four. What does he say? He stands up. And he declares, He says, you know what? The king has got a crooked nose. That's how he praises the king after the king who's a little tipsy, asks that everyone prays, really? The king has a crooked nose? That's what you could come up with? Kamuvan, self-understood. The king was exceptionally angry. I mean, it's hardly surprising. This is the feast, a celebratory feast. He wants to be praised and this man gets up and says he's got a crooked nose. So he's a chutzpah This is the height of, of, of uh, 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 disrespect that one could ever have for a king in such a situation. He says, you know what? This nobleman, do you know what you should do to him? Take him out and ex- execute him immediately. This man needs to be executed his, uh, his attitude towards me is absolutely disgraceful. I want him executed right away. You know what? The guy was tipsy when he, when he gave that, uh, made that decision. Maybe he calms down. He's not quite as drunk as he was. And before the execution actually takes place, the king asks, He's a little curious. He wants to know. He wants to understand what was going through this guy's brain. Does he have a brain? What was he thinking? Did he think he was going to say the king has a crooked nose and he's, he's not going to be this reaction? What was going through his mind? What could he have thought? The king was going to say, the others came, but one said he's so wise, the other one said he's so rich, the other one said he's so powerful, the other one said he's so kind, he gets up and he says he's got a crooked nose. What was he thinking? How could he have said such a stupid thing? He, I mean, listen, the man was a nobleman, so he wasn't there for no reason. Clearly, he had something in mind when he said it. And the king was curious, he wants to know, what did he have in mind? The Tsar, the nobleman, is on the gallows, waiting to be hung, and the king comes up to him and says to him, I hope you don't mind me asking, what was going through your mind when you said such a stupid and offensive thing to me and about me? And the nobleman responds, he replies as follows, Malki Hanichbod, your majesty. Of course I didn't want to offend you. Of, co- of course, would you think that I'd want to offend you? Definitely not. Never occur to me to do anything that's offensive to you. I have respect for you. You are our king. You are our monarch. And everything that I said when I got up and spoke and I spoke about your crooked nose was said in your honour. I wanted to honour you. Intriguing, right? 
שכן מדבריו של השר הראשון, אשר שיבחס חכמסך. ניתן היה להסיק, כי לדעתי גבורת חיינה ראויה לציר. You know what, he said, I want to tell you something. When somebody speaks about one of your attributes and says, you are so wise, do you know what they're really saying? That all of the other attributes that are a praise for you, you're not so good at. You're not superlative in those things. For example, you're not the mightiest and most powerful of kings. You're very wise. Remember, my father told me, I still remember the name, but I'm not going to say it. He said when he was growing up in, in Stamford Hill in London, there was a doctor, a from doctor in Stamford Hill in North London. And uh, people used to go to him and he would ask, is this doctor a good doctor? And the answer invariably was, he's an Elechid. He's a very devout Jew. In other words, we don't want to argue... <laughs> We don't want to answer the question about his medical expertise. We can just tell you that he's never missed Shachris Minchamarev and he always makes sure to put tefillin on and he's kept Shabbos, etc. He's an Erlachayid. He may not be a very good doctor. When the Tsar gets up and says the Chochmah of the king is so wonderful and so great, what about his Gvura? What about his Chesed? What about his Oysher? What about those? He doesn't mention those things. Which kind of implies that when it comes to those things, perhaps he isn't number one. Maybe he's number two, three or ten. That's what the Tsar, standing on the gallows, said to the king. What about the second nobleman who stood up and said that your gvura, your might, is extremely great? Perhaps what he was saying is that your wisdom is not quite as great as some of the greatest wise people around the world. Oh, your gvura is fantastic, but the wisdom, maybe you could do better. Hashlishid Gishesa the third one, focused on your wealth. Well, plenty of wealthy people who may not be great in anything else. What they're good at is making money. Which means that the third Tsar was somehow excluding the other attributes that he could have praised. And the fourth one, the fact is, the fourth one, all he was saying, he's a very kind fellow. You're, you're a person who wants to do kindness. You're a person who thrives on being good to others. What about Gvura? What about Chachma? What about Oysher? Maybe not the best in those things. So you see that each one of the other um, Sorim noblemen who stood up said something nice about you, but they left out everything else. Lefichach, therefore, he said, in order to correct, to make sure that we could uh, get back to reset button, the situation based on what the previous four Sarim noblemen had said, perhaps there's, there's some disparity between the various attributes that you have as a king, some you're better at, some you're not so good at. I stood up and I said, do you know why, what the king is? He has a crooked nose. That's the best thing I can say about him. I can tell you he's got a crooked nose. What does that mean? Because 
I wanted to convey that besides for this very minor um, negative fact about you, it's not significant in any way, shape or form. You've got a crooked nose, big deal. It's not such a big deal at all. Besides for that, he's got a crooked nose. Everything else about you is absolutely perfect in every possible way. You are the best. There's no one who's better than you. I picked on the smallest thing about you that one could say in a negative sense to highlight the fact that in every other sense, you are perfect. Zehu HaMoshul, that's the Moshul. And from that we can understand what the, uh, what the lesson is that can be learnt. Imagine the Torah would have written down some of the good things that the Jewish people did, whatever they were, that they were charitable, they were kind, they were, they were wonderful, they were wise, whatever they would have written. You might have thought, these are the only good things to say about the Jewish people. It's not a very long list. You know, on this occasion they did this thing, on that occasion they did that, it wasn't bad, etc. But nothing else. For this reason, do you know what the Torah did? The Torah did exactly what the final nobleman did, the fifth nobleman in that parable with the king. Mentioning specifically the isolated incidents of negativity, negative facts about the Jewish people, things that they did wrong, and the drawbacks about their initial behavior as the Jewish people, and as they drew closer to the uh, conquest of the promised land. Those things are mentioned and they're few and far between and not everybody was involved. Those are the things that are mentioned. Do you know why? To explain and to reveal to everybody that cannot be found among the Jewish people. Only these sins. You know the sins that mentioned in the Torah? It's the only thing that the Jewish people ever did wrong throughout 40 years. Besides for these things, which I mentioned in the Torah, which are very negative and regrettable, but besides for those things, they never did anything wrong. They were complete in every way. They were righteous in every possible way. That's the reason why these, the interim years, the 38 years, about which we know nothing, there's not even a ghost story, there's no information whatsoever, we have zero information about what happened during those 38 years, that's the reason for it. Do you know why? Because nothing happened that was negative and we don't report positive. We only report positive when there's something much more negative to say, right? That's what the first four Sorim did. If we say something positive about the Jewish people, that would imply that there was something negative that we hadn't said. But if you say something negative, the implication is that everything else is possible, is positive. Throughout those 38 interim years, there was nothing negative happened. 
everything was positive, everything was wonderful. You know, the fact is, you don't have to talk about the good. It's assumed that's the default position, that the Jewish people were good and they were wonderful. Besides for those sins that were mentioned, Besides for the things which are mentioned, which are negative, about those people that conducted themselves in that way in the first year and the last year, in every other respect and throughout that time, every other person, the entire Jewish nation behaved in an exemplary fashion. Kemetav ma'alosam, in the best possible way, hanizgova, we would never be able to understand it, even if it was explained to us how high, how special, how elevated the Jewish people were in every possible respect, besides for those isolated incidents which are mentioned. Let's now Go over to Ori Miklot. The Krisem Lochem Orim Ori Miklot Tieno Lochem Venos Shomor Eitzach Makas Nefesh Bishkoga. We have a law in Jewish law, and it's ancient law. It doesn't apply today. In ancient law, if somebody was uh, died at someone else's hand, and that person didn't mean it, but they were, as it were, the killer. The Torah recognizes that the the law of that time was that if a person dies at another person's hand, the family has the right to avenge that death by killing the perpetrator. It's a fact. We know it to be true. And in order to protect the killer, the person at whose hand the other person had died, the relative of the family had died, that person could run away to an irmiklot, which is a city of refuge. There were three on one side of the Yardin, three on the other side of the Yardin, and another 42 cities that were cities of the tribe of Levi. And those 48 cities could be used as a city of refuge for these killers. So if they, they wouldn't ever be more than a few miles away. They would be in danger until they got there. And they had to stay there until the high priest died. And when the high priest died, they could return home. Whilst they were in the city, they were not in any danger. No uh, murdering family member or killing family member could come and kill the, uh, the, uh, the person who is guilty of manslaughter. And when they got home after the Kohen Godel died, all bets were off. It was back to square one. They were no longer in any danger. That was the law. That is the law. There's in Maseches Makus, it's discussed in great detail and elsewhere. And uh, the interesting thing is, as pointed out by the Mikdash Halevi, is the use of the word Reitzeach to describe the person who's guilty of manslaughter. Reitzeach means murderer. Uh, why would you use that word to describe someone who had killed someone else by accident? We know we're talking about somebody who killed someone else by accident. If you read the Psukim, you'll see that the entire description of what happened is talking about somebody who made a mistake, he dropped something, he tripped, he, whatever it is that happened that caused the other person to die was not something that he necessarily could have stopped and he certainly didn't do it deliberately and therefore can't be accused of homicide. It's called shoigeg, it's called an accident. He never had any deliberate intent when uh, he went about his daily business. 
The sad part is that as a result of something that happened at his hand, whatever it may be, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was climbing a ladder, he was on a roof and he fell down, he fell on top of somebody and that person died. He lived, so now he is considered to be uh, a, a manslaughterer, somebody who's guilty of having killed someone else, even though it's an accident. He has to run away to, to the, uh, the Irmiklot. He had no, there was no premeditation. He never hated that person. He never intended to kill him. It happened suddenly, out of the blue, without any premeditation. Below Tzadia, there was no, um, there was no uh, um, intent. There was no, there was no planning involved. You know, Tzadia is like hunting, right? You, you, you have some type of plan that you want to kill this particular person, and you work it all out, and that person then dies at your hand. There was nothing like that. There was no way, in a sense, for the person at whose hand the other one was killed to have prevented, at least on the face of it, the death of that other person. And therefore, we need to explain, we need to understand. Why is the killer in this situation, the person who's guilty of having killed someone Bashaigig, referred to as Rotzeach, which is which is which is something that we refer that we use, a word that we re- use to refer to a murderer. Why does this person have to go into exile, into the city of refuge at all? He didn't do anything wrong. I mean, what is going on here? How is it possible that we would allow the Goyal Hadom to kill that person? How is it possible that person's life could be in danger for having killed someone by accident? Why would the Torah allow such a thing? The fact is, on the face of it, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, yes, somebody died, but it wasn't because he did something wrong. He's not somebody, he's not guilty. To be guilty, you have to have done a crime. He didn't do a crime. He had no intention to do anything to his friend, to his compatriot. He, he, all he wanted to do was go about his daily business and to make sure that he got home that night and ate supper and spent time with his family. Why do we disrupt his life? Why do we put him in danger? Why do we refer to him as a Rotzeach? That's the question the Mikdash Alevi asks. Perhaps we can answer as follows. Let's, let's be honest about it. Let's think it through. Let's be frank. Somebody who, who's at whose hand somebody else was killed is somebody who was sloppy, was somehow, you know, not thinking through what they were doing. You, you can't blame them for it. You can't say that they intended to kill. But somehow, it's, you know, it's, it's like if a builder builds a house and they build the house in such a way that uh, they haven't followed building regulations. And we know that building regulations are there to make sure that people do not, uh, you know, have tragedies happening in their homes. And I, I know of cases where houses have fallen down or balconies have fallen off or you know, roofs have caved in because the builders didn't follow building regulations. Now, on many occasions, nothing happens, nobody dies. 
but on other occasions, that tragic accident, because that's what we call it, an accident, it's not really an accident, it's negligent. And as a result of the negligence, that person died. What does negligence mean? That the person who could have prevented it by acting differently didn't. Does that make them a murderer? Not in the strict sense of, of homicide as, as a, a legal definition, but it certainly makes them somebody who is culpable somewhat for the death of the other person. You know what? The reason that this person is punished, that this person is considered a retziach, is because they didn't really consider every possible outcome of, the, of their actions. And one of those outcomes was danger, and one of those outcomes led to someone else's death. Let's, let's be honest, says the Mikdash Alevi, let's be frank about who we are and what we're here to do. We human beings, why were we put here? What, what are we doing here? Why are we in this world? We're not animals, where we just go about our lives and just do things and then things happen. We're not clumsy fools. We're people who have to consider. We are animals that are humans, that must consider every one of our actions carefully and in advance. That's what we need to do. We need to consider our actions very carefully. We have to think every single minute what it is that we need to do. What does Hashem want from us? What does He actually want from us? Wake up in the morning. What does He want from us today? How is our day going to look? We need to plan it. We need to think it through. We need to consider it. We need to reflect on it. Let's, be, let's face the fact that every one of our acts, there's no such thing as an act without something that preceded it. It's always a reaction to something else. The fact that something has happened is because something else happened, because something else happened before it. And if we follow the sequence of events, we know, we know only too well, that the ultimate outcome could be negative, even if we hope. And in many cases, it will be the case that it isn't negative, but it could be negative. That lack of foresight, the fact that we haven't thought it through enough so that we can prevent the negative from happening, is somewhat our fault. That's the fact. All of Lidoig, a person needs to think carefully. We need to think through all our actions before we do them very, very carefully. We have to consider and reflect what might happen. You know, people take risks. Every major investment fund and company, every investment bank has a risk division that calculates the risk. They don't always get it right, but at least they are considering the risk. If, is this something that's considered a risky investment? What's the level of risk? Is it high risk? Is it medium risk? Is it low risk? What is the level of risk? You can invest in something that's a very safe investment, but it based, based on calculations as to why it is safe. The history of this particular investment is such 
that uh, it's not going to go wrong and it's continue, going to continue paying dividends. Then there's other things which are high risk. It's an emerging economy. It's, uh, it's a new business that hasn't been tested before, doesn't have good history, doesn't have good track. Okay, it could be a 20x investment. You could put in a dollar and earn $20 but it also could be that you lose the dollar. You need to know that in advance. Everything needs to be considered. By the way, when it comes to investing money, we're all very careful. We all think it through very carefully. When it comes to our actions, we're not always quite as careful. And that's what it says. And that's the fact. If we think through everything very carefully, then we're much less likely to be in a situation where the outcome is going to be negative and is going to, uh, uh, it's going to result in something bad happening to another person. Somebody reaches a situation where they've killed someone else, as it were, by accident. There's no question about it, that he's not considered or reflected carefully about everything that he's doing. He's somebody who just does things off the cuff, by the seat of their pants, not thinking it through in such a way that they can prevent the accident from happening before it happens. You need to make sure that you've put all the protective measures in place to make sure that the accident, the negative thing, doesn't, is not the outcome. Had he thought carefully, had he reflected about everything that he was going to do that day, and he was be, would have been careful based on that reflection about the, his actions or her actions that day. He certainly or she certainly would have. Uh, known about the possibility, the potential for the negative outcome that could occur and would have taken the necessary mitigating action to prevent it from happening in the first place. The terrible thing that happened wouldn't have happened. For example, I'll give you a good example. I've spoken about it before. If you're in a car and you get, you know, you're driving and somebody texts you, you look down at your phone and you're, and you're texting them back. You're not really putting your eye on the road. Does it mean that you're going to run someone over? Chas v'sholem. Should never happen. And probably nine times out of ten or 99 times out of a hundred, nothing is going to happen. But all it takes is one time. And a person who never texts while they're driving, it's never going to happen to them. I mean, of course, somebody could walk out in front of their car and that they can't prevent. But the negative outcome of somebody not being focused on driving because they're doing something else, that is something that could be considered and reflected upon before it happens and it can be prevented from happening. Is it an accident? It's kind of an accident because, of course, you didn't plan it in advance. You had nothing in, in mind. You didn't want to cause that person any harm, and yet that person was harmed. And that action, that terrible thing that happened would never have happened if he would have thought through every one of his actions before he did them to make sure that nothing bad could occur. And that's why and that's why the Torah does refer to that person as a Reteach. 
Let's be honest about it. Let's be frank, as I've said. The reason it happened is because it didn't reflect, she didn't reflect before what might have happened, what could happen, which eventually did happen. Does that make them a murderer? Men, kind of, not quite, but you refer to that person that way because had they not um, been so reckless, the outcome wouldn't have been the one that happened, the one that occurred. And that's why, says the Mikdash Alevi, we send the Retzeyach, the Reitzchim, the person who killed Beshoigeg, to the cities of the Levim. The Levim are people who are, in a sense, Porush Me'olam Hazer. They're not part of the world. They're otherworldly. They are focused on Torah. They are, they are focused on good deeds. They don't inherit. They don't f have farms. They don't. They're not involved in business. Their total avoda is avodas Hashem. That's all they do. Is they are servants of Hashem, and you have to spend time in the irmiklot to be around people for whom every action is an act of God, and every act is considered carefully and is considered meticulously because they want to be avde Hashem and avde Hashem. That's the second piece in the Mikdash Halevi, and now it's time for the third. We're going to talk about the fact that the three cities, the, the main Ore Miklot, there's three of them on one side of the Yardain, Eshloisha Orem Titnum Evele Yardain, Eshloisha Orem Titnum Eretz Kanan, and there's another three on the other side in Eretz Kanan. Says the Mikdash Alevi. I'm not going to read the whole thing through and I'll tell you what he says. It's absolutely fantastic. He says the Gemara. Um, asks a question. Why is it that you needed three Ore Miklot on the other side of the Yardin, of the Jordan River, where today is a country called Jordan? That was where there was um, uh, the Ruvain God and half of Shevet Menashe. That's where they lived. There's two and a half, uh, two and a half Shvatim. On the other side of the Yardin, Eretz Yisrael, there were nine and a half Shvatim, nine and a half tribes. So you see that it's much more numerous in the Eretz Yisrael side. So why would it be, why would the expectation be that you need three Ore Miklot, three? I know it's lovely, it's parallel. You've got one at the top, one in the middle, one at the bottom. But why do you need three? One on one side would have been enough and five on the other side would have been more appropriate or maybe four and two. Why do you need three and three? Says the Gemara, says the Gemara, the following answer. Because in Gilad, that's talking about that area, Moyov, where today is the country of Jordan, there are Reitzchim, they're murderers, they're killers. Do you know what there is? There's many more killers. That's why on that side you needed three Ore Miklot, as many as you needed on the other side of the yard in Eretz Yisrael, where there were nine and a half tribes. Puzzling, right? That's what the Gemara says. It makes no sense, says the Mikdash Alevi. How can we now, predicting, at the end of Bamidbar, they'd never even gone to Eretz Yisrael. No one settled anywhere. And we know that they needed to conquer Eretz Yisrael, which would take 14 years eventually, that they needed to conquer it before anyone settled in Gilad. How could they predict now that there's going to be Reitzchim in Gilad? Shechichi Reitzchim be Gilad? Really? Why? How would they know that? Why would they think that? 
Aim ain letoshvah gilad bechira chofshis? It's even a stronger question. Surely we know that those people who lived in gilad from let's say shever uvein, they have free choice. Maybe they would choose not to behave in the way that we described in the previous Vatara. They would be very careful. They would be people who would be considerate. They would t- take risk assessments and know exactly what they needed to do in order to prevent these tragedies from happening. Why would we say that the Reutzchim are more shchichi in Gilad than they are in Eretz Yisrael? Are we saying that they are predetermined? We know the Rambam wouldn't agree with that. No one is predetermined to be a murderer. Are we suggesting that that's what the Gemara means when it says that in, in Gilad, Shchichi, um, even though uh, there are far less people there because they are predetermined to be killers, killers by accident, but because they are negligent and inconsiderate? Does it make any sense? It makes no sense at all. Answers the Mikdash HaLevi, Satshuva Novin, Let's look at what it is that the Jewish people, um, the tribe of Reuven, the tribe of God, um, and we know half of Menashe, but those were the two main ones. What was their request to Moshe Rabbeinu when they asked to stay in Stay Moyov as opposed to going into Eretz Yisrael? It says, Perik Lamad Beis, Posuk Tezayin, Vayikshuei Lova Yoimru. The Bnei God and Bnei Ruvain said, we're going to build here beautiful enclosures for our flocks and we're going to build cities for our children. And Rashi says, They want to build beautiful enclosures for their, for their flocks. You could see from this, that the culture among Reuven and God was to care more for their money, for their wealth, for their possessions, than for their own sons and daughters. Because we see that in the Pasuk, they preceded, the in, within the request, uh, the mention of their rechush, of their money, of their wealth, of their possessions, before they spoke about their families, before they spoke about their children. From this we can see that those Shvatim, the tribes that inherited the Eva um, Hayardin territory, they were more concerned about their wealth and their possessions than they were about the education of their sons and of their daughters. I mean, the truth is, we can't judge them. Because it's not saying that we don't want to educate our children. But somehow it came out that in their minds, the reason why they want to be here in Moyov and stay Moyov, as opposed to in Eretz Yisrael, is because they want to, here's a wonderful, lush, green country that we want to use for our mikne, for our flocks, for our possessions. Of course, we're going to take care of our children. It goes without saying, we're going to build the best schools, we're going to educate them properly. But the mikne came first. It's not an avera. It's not something they did wrong. But we can tell who they were as a result of what they said. And the truth is, if we were listening to it, if we read through this posuk, we may not have picked it up. Rashi picks it up and we can, we can run with that ball. From this we can see. 
From this we can see the fact that they didn't care enough sufficiently about the education of their children. These Shvatim were not as concerned as they should have been. Therefore, we had to take precautions in advance. The fact is, you always prevention is the best cure. You want to make sure that you've taken the necessary uh, preventive measures to ensure the the uh, stability of wherever it is that you're dealing with, whatever the area may be. The yigrei hatarbois shall reitzchim bekerav b'neim shall oisam ashvatim. The fact is, the culture of reitzchim might just very well become the culture of the tribes that lived on the other side of the Yardin. The possibility seemed very strong, as we said in the previous Torah, that people who don't get educated and have not thought through the education of their children properly are going to breed, it's going to result in the type of people that might be inconsiderate and negligent and might very well lead them to being reitzchim. Reitzchim in the sense of killing people by accident, not on purpose. But that's why you need three Ari Miklot among two and a half tribes that are not as concerned about education um, in, in, uh, in uh, difference, the difference uh, between them and the other nine and a half tribes. The other nine and a half tribes are not so concerned about their mikne, about their mummoin, about their wealth, about their possessions. And therefore they only needed three even though there were nine and a half tribes there. And we may not think that they did anything too wrong. It's not about them doing something wrong. It's about making sure that we've mitigated their um, lack of concern, lack of uh, consideration for the needs, the educational needs of their children. We call mokkaim afilu pegam kalm enze. Even the small so-called pegam, it always starts mikotn hechol. The smallest thing grows into something much larger. Dai boy kadele hasev nizokim atzumim ledoire doiris. That is something that could have resulted and possibly and potentially did result in some terrible outcomes for those tribes over the course of the history of the generations that were to follow. We'll leave it here for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening.